Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I just needed to get my thoughts written down so I know, you know, all it's overwhelming. I had so many questions. I didn't even know what my questions were. So I just had to start writing them down. Hello, and welcome to Financials Podcast, Future Rich. My name is Barbara Ginty, and I'm your host and a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And I am here today with my guest, Savannah Davenport. Hello, Savannah Davenport. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, I am excited to know about the name. Uh, So yes, this was like, and when I was in college, which feels like forever ago, sadly, um, my friends and I would come up with like this alter ego whenever we were doing something mischievous or like being, you know, rowdy or having too much fun. So we'd always be like, stop being Savannah, like calm down. And that was like always just the name we passed around. So it just felt appropriate. And I, it felt appropriate. Right. It just that's always my go to name when I need a fake name now. Well, I love it because you were so, I feel like the fake name is something that gives people pause or they struggle. Some people struggle with coming up with one. So you like really had this one down. So that's awesome. Oh yeah. That was the the easiest part of prepping for this whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fake name. I love it. Okay, cool. Well, so tell me a bit about yourself. So age, um, where you live, what you do, partner, income, all that jazz. So I'm 27 years old, almost 28. I live in the Philadelphia area. Um, I work in the consulting world and my salary is 64,000 and some change. And I live with my, uh, long-term boyfriend, but our finances are separate. So we've, we haven't done that part yet. Merging the finances. So merging on paper. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So on paper I'm single, but I do have a partner who, who helps with certain you know, just like groceries and stuff like that. But all of the major stuff is still separate. Separate. Okay. And then you split, do you split rent? We do. And so I came up with a little spreadsheet here to kind of help me really know what I'm (laughs) got to tell you. Um, So everything on my spreadsheet is what I pay and it's already been, yeah. So, you know, I always try I always try to think as an independent woman that I don't want to rely on anybody. So I have always, you know, kept things with just that in mind. And I like that because yeah. I think it's really important. I think at least my personal opinion is it's important to have your independence in a financial standpoint as well, because then you're not beholden to anybody, right? So mm-hmm. if something needs to change or you want to make a change, you have your own financial wherewithal to do that. Absolutely. I agree. All right. So here we go. Okay. Also, shout out. I love that you're from PA. I went to school in PA. Oh, no way. Yes. Where, where in PA? I went to the University of Scranton. Oh, my goodness. Very, very awesome. So did Natasha, my sister. Her fake name is Natasha. We went to oh. school. To, we went to college together. That's so funny. I went to college together with my sister. Oh, really? I thought so it was maybe so it's fun. A PA thing. Maybe it's a PA thing. 
Yeah. I liked it, I think, maybe a little more than her. And then, but she did like one up me. She got, she had a fake ID or, or somehow managed to get into the bars and I could not. So Aww. I know I was like my freshman sisters at the bar and I had been kicked out. So womp, womp, womp. Womp. Good, on, <laughs> good on Natasha for her negotiating yeah. skills on getting in the bar when I could not. Okay. Definitely. So, all right. So let's walk through your, let's start with, okay. So you're looking through the spreadsheet. Okay. Net salary monthly, you bring in 5,357 mm-hmm. or actually is it 4,179? I think is the right number. The post tax. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So after what you get deposited into your bank account for the month is 4179 Yes. Perfect. And then you are, you're contributing to a Roth IRA, you, and then you're doing the Roth 401k. Yes. Perfect. And you're putting in 10000 a year approximately? Yes. For the Roth 401k. Yep. Okay. So then, so your check of 4179 is after your contribution to your 401k and after your HSA, right? So we've already got the, and then I'm imagining. Okay, wait, let me, I think (laughs) I might've messed up this spreadsheet. No, no, it's not messed up. So that 4,179 a month number is just what I bring home with taxes taken out. Okay. And then, (laughs) so yeah, this is probably not how a certified financial planner would have set this no, up. No, 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 no. But so 4179 roughly is what I bring home after taxes are taken out. Okay. And then the, if you look at my total spending, total investing, investing. and total cash savings, yes, that's kind of where I deduct them from that, what I actually bring home. And, and then what is left over is that very bottom number there. Got it. Okay. So yeah, we can, you, that's just the way I do it. You can do it any way you want. There's no right or wrong way to, to do your budget spreadsheet. Okay. So we'll, let's work off this. So let's go through first. So you're bringing in 4,179,000 mm-hmm. is your after tax, right? And then yes. you have for expenses, your phone for $40, rent for 400. Mm-hmm. And then the rents in this last batch of podcasting have been a dream, Oh, I know. This is, it's a family owned property. So it has been very, I've been very privileged to be able to live there. Um, and it's allowing me to save some money. So I acknowledge that that is low and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, that's great. We had another woman on, um, and hers was like 400 as well. So mm-hmm. different states. So, um, yeah, the low, low rent is great. Okay. And then groceries 250 for the month. Um, that kind of also includes eating out, okay. which, is a guilty habit. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, I like to eat out too. Um, okay. So fuel 50, car insurance, 70, medical insurance, 84, vision, $2, identity protection. Ooh, who do you use for identity protection? 1995. I think it's Equifax. I had a bit of a identity scare. So I was like, all right, it's worth the 20 bucks a month. I'm don't want to mess around with my identity. So yeah, I actually think that one will become more commonplace because with, you know, everything on the cloud and hacks and everything. Mm-hmm. Google, roughly $2. Password manager, $3. Miscellaneous, 200 And then, okay, so then we get into your investing. So you're putting 500 a month into your Roth IRA outside of work. You're doing yes. your Roth 401k 
monthly at $857. So you're doing approximately 10,000 a year. Mm-hmm. You're doing uh, your HSA for $237 a month. So $28.50 a year. Mm-hmm. And then, so based on your total spending at the end of the month, you have approximately uh, 1,000, we'll just use round numbers, 1,400 left over. Correct. Perfect. Okay. I have a, I have a question. Yeah. Why are you doing the Roth 401k and the Roth IRA? Did you have that first? Like the Roth IRA first? Okay. Yeah. So the Roth IRA was right out of college. My sister advocated that I get that. So I did. And at the time who I was working for didn't offer any uh, retirement plan. So now I thankfully have a company that does. And so now I have both. Perfect. Okay. And you have almost equal amounts. So good job. So you have yeah. 38000 in your Roth IRA that you do outside of work. And then you have 39000 in your work Roth 401k. Yep. And is there any match for your work plan? There is. It's 3%. Okay. Is that reflected anywhere on here? Yes. Okay. If you go into the um, 401k tab. <laughs> Yay. Oh my I gosh. Have... I had it too. I had it too low on my, I didn't see the tab. I had it too low. Okay. 401k oh, tab. Oh yes. Perfect. I broke it all out. Awesome. Okay. So, and the 3%, the employer match, isn't that, is that pre-tax or post-tax? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, Something to just note down and look because mm-hmm. oftentimes the employer, so your company puts it in pre-tax as they get a tax break. Mm-hmm. It's just so that when you look at your 401k, you'll know what is the Roth amount and then what's the pre-tax amount. And it would be predominantly Roth because of what you're putting in but you want to check what your employer contribution is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those that was my first question. And then, okay, so let's talk about, we've got lots of questions here now that I'm seeing all the tabs. I know. Okay. Some so, of these questions are, you know, these are just questions I have had. I don't expect us to be able to cover, you know, all of them or whatever, but no, let's I just see. needed to get my thoughts written down. So I know, you know, all it's overwhelming. I had so many questions. I didn't even know what my questions were. So I just had to start writing them down. Yeah, no, totally. Well, let's see if we can get some clarity around this. Okay. So we sure. have money left over. Let you, okay. So we talked about you do, you've done a great job. So between both of your Roths, you have 77,000 saved just with the Roths. So fantastic. Right, because you have more than what your annual income is at twenty seven, almost twenty eight. Then you have five thousand or fifty five hundred in your HSA, which eventually those, if you don't use that, can be used for retirement. Yes, which is nice. Heard you mention that before, and right now none of my HSA money is invested, which I feel like is probably a big, yeah, a big womp womp. When I signed up, you know, for it right off the bat, I think you have to have a certain, you would have a minimum amount in your account to mm-hmm. actually invest. Yes. And obviously when I opened it, I didn't have that. So I just was saving that monthly contribution and then forgot. And then now we're in open enrollment again this year. And I'm like, oh, you know what? There's yeah. a nice chunk of change sitting in there now. And I should probably invest some of it. Yeah. And- so that's what I was going to say. I think it would be totally fine. You like estimate out what your, your healthcare costs will be, but Let's say if you think you're only going to need 2500 then mm-hmm. the rest you could put in into the market because you can invest in the HSA. So mm-hmm. okay. yeah, I would do that. And it works as a retirement account and, somehow? Yeah. Saying? So eventually uh, you can use it for retirement if you don't use it for healthcare. I mean, mm. it could be used for healthcare or if you end up not needing it, unlike the um, flexible spending accounts, right? Like where you have to use it or lose it. 
Right. Um, the HSA, you can just keep, you can keep putting the money in there. And then if it's not used for healthcare expenses down the line, it could, it could be used like a retirement account. That's great. Yeah. That's, a, that's definitely a big benefit of the, the HSA. So that's great that you have that. And then you have a brokerage account with 20,000 in it. And yes. what, um, what does CO stand for, for savings? Oh, that's just capital one. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. That's- and then you have We're- 60,000 there. Yes. So you've saved a lot of money. I have tried. I have tried. I have tried. When I graduated, I didn't, did not make a lot. So my, my philosophy was what I told myself was it's not about how much you make. It's about how much you save. So I didn't make a lot, but I saved so much of what I did make. So yeah, it is, (laughs) it is 100% not what you make. It's about really your expenses and, and what your goals are and how much you can save off of that. We did an expert episode with Emily Gestapolos. I hopefully I didn't butcher her name, but it's, um, if you're listening to this, it's going to have aired on November 19th, 2021. And she brought up a really interesting point in that episode when her and her husband went from two incomes to one income, they actually saved more money. Because it forced them to sit down and say, okay, we're making this life change. Where is our money going? You know, so that we can change our trajectory, change our careers. That that was the Mm -hmm. priority. And they were able to save more money on one income than they had on two. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So definitely it's, it's not as much what you make, but really how diligent you are with your expenses and, and the saving. So good, good job that you, good job at learning that out of the gate, right? Cause some people don't figure that out until like, or never figure it out or don't figure it out until they're like really far down the path of earning. And then it's don't have as much time because between all of these accounts on this tab, you have 164,000 saved between your uh, capital one savings brokerage, which is just an investment account. And then the Roths and the HSA. So that's fantastic. Okay, good. That's nice to hear because st- some I always feel behind um but I feel like everyone says <laughs> everyone says that and the interesting thing is we could do like a benchmark so like if you're saying you're making 64,000 you've saved 164,000 mm. and you make 64,000 in a year for work pre-tax right you know gross and so the benchmark thing is hard because like everyone has different goals right of where financial goals so it's it's hard to benchmark but I think if you wanted to look at a benchmark knowing that you've saved 100,000 plus your salary is fantastic. So let's, and you still have money left over in your budget. So let's talk about, do you want to go to the next tab? Should we we mosey on? (laughs) Yes, let's, let's mosey. Okay, so let's go to savings. Okay, so we have savings goals. So are you going to walk me through this? Yes, so I have some short-term saving goals, obviously, and then some longer-term goals. my goal was to have an emergency fund of 30000 saved up by this year. I have, like we said, 60000 in just like liquid cash. Well, yes. in a bank. <laughs> I'm not under my mattress. Please don't rob me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I've met the emergency fund like um, hurdle. Yes. And then check that next, box. Check that box. Next year, I'm anticipating needing a new car because I've been just scraping by with a really old minivan um so and I don't have kids you have a minivan I I have a minivan I love it but I don't need it um I love that you have a minivan because I love that you've definitely made sacrifices in your budget to get to these numbers yes it's definitely not cool driving a minivan as a single woman in your 20s but 
Um, I've made do. So I think next year it's probably, I'm anticipating that it's at the end of its life and I just want to build in 12,000 for a new car if needed. Perfect. Obviously I could choose to lease if I don't, you know, if I need to put that 12,000 elsewhere, but conservatively. So, and then down the road in like, I'm thinking three to four years, Mm -hmm. I'll probably want to buy a house, which is scary because they're so expensive right now with, um, you know, just the housing market. So I just said that I would probably need 70,000 for a down payment. Again, not including my partner who I love and we're very committed (laughs) in this just because God forbid, you never know. So totally going in this with the mindset that I might have to get my own house one day. Why not? Um, so 70,000 for the down payment because the Philly area is kind of crazy and 10,000 for closing costs and then 10,000 for home repairs. Cause I heard your story about <laughs> gosh, the sewer line. The I think it was sewer line. So, oh, terrible, just, terrible. Like would never want to not have a cushion. So this is all like, this is like my ideal savings. Like if cash was just being flown into my account. So it's very conservative and high, but basically I wouldn't need to have 132,000 saved by 2025. Okay. Which is crazy to say. Which is crazy to say, but you already have 60 saved because that 132 is, so you're on your way. So if you think about it from another lens, you already have the emergency fund done. You already have the new car and you already have part of the house down payment done. Yes. So, so you're, you're moving right along here. We're moving there. So that means that there's a difference that I would have to make up for of 72000 I think, yep. which over the course of three years breaks down to 2000 a month if my math is right, Yep. which it could, it could not be right. So please double check me. But um, And I guess this might also kind of filter into another issue I have where my brokerage account, I it says I have 20000 but 10,000 of that is not invested because I'm confused as to like, I transferred that 10,000 into the brokerage with the, from my savings account. So okay. I had 70,000 transferred 10,000 into the brokerage with the intention of investing it. But then I froze because I don't know where to like, is it better to save it now? The house is like three years down the line. So maybe I should invest it. Like it's just sitting there not making any money right now. So, so yeah, so yeah, let's chat about that because so my opinion of the market is the market needs to be for longer term because you don't mm-hmm. want to put, you know, if you put the money in there and then in 20, well, so yours is I think far enough out because we're in 2021 and it's at least three to four years out. Mm-hmm. And also because, you know, if you knew you definitively wanted to buy, you know, a next year, I would say you definitely don't want that money in the market because what if the market's down? Then you have less of a down payment, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have that flexibility uh, and really be flexible with your time too. So, cause you never want to get out in my opinion in a down market. If you don't have to, you want to be able to stay in the market and let it recover. If anything, you want to buy more when things are on sale. I think the question will really be if you're comfortable being in the market, knowing that, you know, in 2025, we could have a down year. We might not, but we could. And if we do, are you comfortable postponing that until it's more advantageous for you to pull the money out? I probably am leaning okay. towards that, being flexible with that three to four year time horizon. Mark. And yep. Maybe that maybe that will change, but you know we're we're not ready to settle down. I mean, we have plans to move out west and live like in a different state for a little bit, renting. And I just think that our you know the house is on the list because I feel like it's something I should do, and it and it can potentially, if in the right market, right, like be its own investment. Yes, totally. 
but you need to listen to the episode I did with Emily Gasopoulos because that will, she's like a female real estate investor. It's like a lot of good info, but yes. Okay. Okay. So if it's like on the goal, like in the future, but you're like flexible and maybe it turns out it's not in three years, maybe it's four years, or maybe it's like for, you're not your primary residence, but maybe a real estate investment, then I would be more comfortable with you having some of those monies in the market Mm -hmm. versus in cash because the flexibility is the key, right? The the timing where people get hurt with the market more, in my opinion, is when they have a definitive timeline, they need the money. And then that timeline doesn't align with where the market returns are, right? So Mm -hmm. if you had to buy a house in 2008 or wanted to retire in 2008 and all of your money was there, well, that was a bad, that's bad timing, right? And we can't control the timing of the market. So here's what I think. I think that you have enough in cash that we're covering your emergency fund, new car, and you have, I guess one way to look at it, um, so that's 42,000 and you have 60,000. So you already have 18,000 towards the down payment. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I, would, I think I would keep what you have in cash in cash. And then my thought is maybe we use this extra money in your budget and contribute that towards your you know, the money that's not allocated and we contribute that to the brokerage account on a regular basis for two reasons. One, it's liquid, meaning it's not a retirement account. So you can get at it. Now, somebody will say to me, you can still get at your Roth, which is, yes, you can get your money back out of your Roth. That's you know what your contribution is. But I don't like that mindset. I like the Roth to be your retirement. Like I like it mm-hmm. to be, that's for the future and I'm not going to touch it. I think it, to me, from a psychology standpoint, it can be a slippery slope, not for everybody, but for some people. So I like the idea since you already have the brokerage of using that for the fourteen hundred a month. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because then over, you know, thirty six months, that's fifty thousand, not including if there's any sort of market gain, and you already have twenty in there. So there's that seventy number you're looking for, without okay. any market growth, and that's using your existing budget. So if there's market growth on that, and that's even higher, then you've kind of come up with the money you want it. Mm-hmm. Right, because then seventy plus sixty, because you wanted additional savings of seventy-two thousand, right? Right. To get to that one thirty-two. So if this account, just based on using the fourteen hundred a month times thirty-six months, is fifty thousand plus you already have twenty thousand in your account. There's our number, right? Now, if mm-hmm. there's market gain, that account could be even greater than seventy thousand, and historically speaking, it should grow. And then you can decide in three years, right? Because that's what the time horizon is. Right. Are you ready to buy a primary property? Or you might not be. You might be like, you know what? I want to move out west now and rent somewhere and I'm just going to keep growing that. Or maybe you decide to buy an investment property as the mm-hmm. first investment. So I, that's, and we'll get down to the other tab. We're still on tab one. So <laughs> we'll get to the other tabs. But I think leaving the, you have enough, I think you have enough, more than enough in savings given your budget. And so I would say, Let's start doing that extra money monthly into the brokerage account and bulk that up because that'll give you that flexibility down the road to determine is three years the right time for you to buy something or do you want to just keep saving and renting? Then you have optionality. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes, that's very, very helpful. Thank you. That makes total sense and I'm on board. Perfect. Okay, cool. So then should we go to tab two? three? Yes. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So let's mosey on um, to the Vanguard brokerage. So, okay. So you have some of it invested and then Mm -hmm. we have, as you said, 10,000 of it not invested. That's just sitting in cash. Yeah. 
Okay. So I, not good. which is not good. This is like something when I ask people when I set up your retirement account, like make sure yes. it's not sitting in cash, make sure it's actually invested. So yes, I would make sure this in, is invested. I'm not going to say investments because I'm licensed. So I can't say what to pick, but mm-hmm. I think I'll explain to you the difference you asked, the difference between an ETF and a mutual fund. The big difference with an ETF, their exchange traded funds is they trade throughout the day. So for instance, it's 11 a.m. Mountain Time. So 11 a.m. Mountain Time during the Monday through Friday, you could go in and buy or sell an ETF. With a mutual fund, they trade at the end of the day. So there's only one price per day. So you won't know what the price is until the market closes, right? They have a net uh, an NAV, net asset value. So that's a big difference. An ETF trades more like an individual stock and a mutual fund doesn't. It trades once a day. It's priced once a day. ETFs tend to be cheaper most often. You just need to look at the expenses on it, and that's your expense ratio. Um, Mutual funds tend to be more managed, meaning there's a portfolio manager and they're actively picking the investment. So it costs more because you have that human being, where an ETF usually mimics something like an index. And so it tends to be cheaper because it's just an algorithm. It's not a person picking individual stocks and saying, this is what we like. It's just mimicking something else. It's copying something else. It tends to be cheaper. Okay. It depends on what you're looking for. What I say when you're going to evaluate invest investments, what I like to do when I'm evaluating investments is I like to first off go with names that I know, name brands, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be testing out long-term money with somebody who just got started. Not to say that they can't be amazing. They can. But if we're trying to come up with a, a mechanism for picking investments, I like to use the name brands. So companies that have been around 80, 90 years because they have a very long track record of investing. Most of the companies that have around 80 or 90 years actually started investing in the market before the S&P 500 even existed, which is wild to think about. Hmm. Then when you narrow down the universe of all the thousands of investments you could choose from, and you're looking for people who have been investing money for 80, 90 years, right? And they have various options. You can go through and find the investments that they offer. And then I would like, I think it's important to look at how do they do in the years that the investments did terrible, right? Hmm. So mm-hmm. I think there's some saying about a sailor that anybody can be a sailor when the, sh- the sun is shining, right? Right. It's a storm that makes the sailor. Mm-hmm. Same thing. And I to- I'm sure I totally butchered that analogy for anyone who's <laughs> into, into that world. But the, the concept is the same, right? Everybody makes money when the market's going up for the most part. So you want to look at how did they do when the market went down, right? Mm-hmm. That's the most right. important part. How did how did those investments handle when everything was on fire and everything was going terribly? How did they do? So did they go down as far as the market? Hopefully not, right? Ideally, they didn't go down quite as far as the overall market did. And another important thing is how did they do when the market recovered? Did they did they make your money back? Like, did you make your money back? So for instance, if the market de- went down, what was the return the next year? Because now to come up, if if your account goes down, here, this is an interesting way to think about it. So if you have $10,000 in the market and the account goes down by 40%, right? You lost $4,000, right? Right. Okay, so now you're at $6,000. So if your $6,000 now now goes up by 40%, that's only 2,400. You're still at a loss, right? Even though it went down 40 and now it came back up 40, you're not positive yet for what you started with. Right. So you have to actually go up more to get even. So it's important to, to look not only how far did the 
investment go down in a bad year, but how did it recover? Did they get you back to whole? And how long did that take? Did it take one year? Did it take two years? Okay. Is that, I think people, what I see that a lot of people don't overlook is they always look at the positive years, right? And I think it's so important to look at the down years and then how did they get you back to whole? Yeah. Is the best way to find this information just like sitting on the website of whichever um, brokerage firm you choose and just like Yep. Looking at all the looking at the, the look at the details sheets and stuff. Yep. Okay. So you can look at the fact usually they offer a fact sheet for every investment and you can also find it on usually Yahoo Finance or you can Google it. But what you want to look at, what I like to look at is not only the one year return, five year return, ten year return, and since inception. I and then when you are doing that, then you can also typically look at the individual years themselves, which I think is important because that's where you really can look at the nitty gritty, like how do they do in those downturns and then how long did it take to recover those mm-hmm. investments? Okay. That's great. Thank you. Cause I, I just never know what to look for, <laughs> you know, like I know that there's usually on most of these associated with most of these funds, they'll have like the risk yep. bar. And like, I always go there and I'm like, okay, now what? Like, no. I don't know. If, I don't know if high risk is, I know high risk, high reward but also more risk. So now that this is helpful to have more kind of like ammo to look at and beef up what I'm actually analyzing. Yeah. And then that way, and then once you say, okay, like, oh, look at this investment and and you can see their, what, you know, what it costs expense ratio versus what the return is. You can say, oh, wow, they've been doing this for, I don't know, 70 years. And since inception, they've averaged X and I'm comfortable with that. Right. Like, and I, and you can even from there, you can even look and see what their top like 20 holdings are. You can see what they own. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's important that when you pick an investment that you know these things, because then when it does get bad, you're like, oh, I've already reviewed how this particular investment will do in a down market. And I know that the last three times there was a down market, this is what it went down. This is how long it took to recover. And not to say that history repeats itself because it's not, you know, you can't guarantee historical returns are indicative of future returns. But at least you have more data points. So then ideally you feel more comfortable. And I think feeling comfortable and knowing what you own is the first step to investing. Definitely. Because then for instance, I think like a good example is if you know that the top 20 holdings or products and services you're familiar with and you use when the market does go down and you still go to the grocery store and purchase those things or use those services, you're like, well, I know it's down, but it's temporarily down because I'm still here buying it. (laughs) Right, right. You know, like I'm still brushing my teeth and I know I own this and I know I use that. And so even though the market tells me that price is down, like I know that that's a market event and they'll eventually come back because here I am using these products and services that I own. Right. So it tends to be a little less scary, I think that way, because I think what most people do is they don't totally know what they own or why they own it. And so then when the market does drop, they get really nervous and have an emotional reaction and get out. Mm-hmm. versus having, you know, more of a disciplined approach where it's like, okay, I knew that the market was going to go down because it always goes up and down. I know how these accounts should function when it goes down because I did my research first and I'm comfortable and I know what I own so that when it goes up, when it does go down, I view it as a sale and I'm comfortable with the downturn because now I can buy more and ride it back up versus the emotional reaction, which is, oh, this is really scary which is what a lot of people do. I just lost on that 10,000 example, $4,000. I'm going to get out and wait for it to get better. Right. So if you know what you own and why you own it, you'll look at it more of a say as a sale and an opportunity versus as a, you know, emotional response. And, you know, it's, oh my gosh, it's on fire. I'm getting out. Right. Right. Does that help? 
Yes, that does help so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, Just giving you like more of the education behind investing because I can't actually give advice on investing. So I can just talk about how to, you know, teach you about it, right? Because they don't teach this in school. And once you understand the mechanisms behind it from a disciplined approach, right? Mm -hmm. And a method, then I feel like it feels less scary. Definitely. Like I, I think I'm smart enough to, once I know what to look for and what to analyze, I can then do my research and pick what I feel might suit my lifestyle. But, you know, actually trying to figure out what to analyze and the details. And it's just so overwhelming to, cause there's so much advice out there and I'll watch one YouTube video, like these are the best funds. And then <laughs> another YouTube video is like, no, these are never, don't do what that last person <laughs> said. So if I can just, what you've said just gives me an outline of what to look for so that I can arrive at my own conclusion. So that's really helpful. Yes. Because just because it's right for one person doesn't make it right for you. So like just what's right for my sister, Natasha, doesn't make it the right investment for me. And so that's another important thing when there's all these people out there on, you know, social media saying what's right and wrong and, and they come from a good place and it might be right for somebody listening, but it might not be right for everybody listening. And that's why we don't do investments on the podcast because that is a very specific, personalized arena. And it, you just can't do that broadly. You could talk about how to evaluate investments and what risk is and asset allocation is from an educational definition standpoint. But when it gets into like your actual investments, it really is a personalized advice arena and a personal decision. And everyone's going to be a little bit different. Right. So, okay. So we, so we're going to use the extra money from your budget, which is great that you have that. And we're going to put that in, you're going to put that in your brokerage account so that we beef that up so that we can mm-hmm. have the optionality to potentially buy a house down the road. Should that make sense for you? And, you know, we'll say like three to five years, Yes. which is awesome. So you've done a great job. And then you're going to make sure that brokerage account is fully invested. You're going to do your own research. And then we're yes. moving over to the 401k, which we touched about a little bit. I I would say for now, um, I always love increasing people's retirements, as you know. Uh, Here's how I would increase your contributions to retirement. If you get a raise, split it with yourself or even put the whole thing into your retirement. Yes. Because I just used all of your extra money for this, the future (laughs) goals. So, Right. I, yes. And I, I, what is, I forget what the like recommended percentage is of your retirement or of your annual salary, they say like put X amount into retirement. I think I'm beyond, I mean, you can never have too much, right? But no. um, <laughs> I think I'm doing, okay. I feel com- comfortable, I guess, with how much I'm currently contributing. So, and typically when I do get raises, I try to not even increase oh. what I give myself. I usually just put it right into savings or investing because I live comfortably now. So I don't really need anything. I don't need to increase it at all. No. And you're doing a great job. So with your retirement savings, you're doing between your Roth IRA and your Roth 401k. We're not even counting the, not counting the HSA, which are, which, you know, could, could potentially, if you don't have any medical expenses, um, could be for retirement too. So between the two of those, you're doing 16,286, not including the company match. Cause that's not included in there, right? The 10,286 or it, it is, it is, right? Um, it's not. It's no, not. This, okay. These- in the t- in my first tab, my budget, that's just my monthly, what I pay. That does not include my employer. Yeah. So you're good on retirement because you're doing 25%. Oh, good. Yeah. So you're good. <laughs> so 
Oh. You're good there. And then, but we do need, I do, I do think you should figure out, um, so we'll leave the 401k alone. And then, but with your HSA, I would use, I would put some of that money into the invest it now that you're in open enrollment, mm-hmm. just because you, if you haven't used it at all yet, you could earmark some to leave in cash for expenses. And then if you don't, but, but whatever amount you think you're going to need, and then the rest could be invested. Okay. And so if I end up, so my $400 rent is a dream, right? Yeah. If I end up moving <laughs> out West, you know, that's going to bump way up and then obviously I'll have to decrease a contribution somewhere along the line. If my living expenses increase, where would you recommend that I decrease my contribution to make up for that? Is there like a hierarchy of like, this should be your top priority. This should be your bottom priority of where you invest, pull from your bottom first type of deal. All right. Well, let's run some numbers real quick. So I hate (laughs) to say, I hate to say decreasing your retirement to like 20%. Also, I think that, okay, so you've moved out West, you think you'd get a different job? Not necessarily. I could probably keep my current position, which I'm pretty content with. So I don't know if I would get a salary change. Okay. So 38, all right, let's see. So 77, I hate to say reduce the retirement. Okay. So right now you have 77,000 saved between the two Roths. So you're 27. At 37, it should be worth like 154 without contributing. 47 should double again, about 300. 57 should double again, about 600. At 67, it should double again to be about 1.2 using the rule of 72, which is saying that 7.2% compounding interest doubles your accounts every 10 years with no contributions. So you've done such a great job on the retirement. You could almost, if you want it to, here's what I would do. I would look at where your brokerage account is and see do you think you have enough money saved for that potential house goal? And could you, you know, cut that down to a thousand dollars a month or eight fifty a month and use the rest for housing cost? Right. Because in two years time, maybe that's grown a lot more than we had anticipated. Or maybe that goal of buying a house now is another year off or two years off. So mm-hmm. I would start by toning down the contribution to your brokerage. And then if you needed anything extra, you could take down the retirement to like 18%. Okay. Do, I don't know if this is something that you are allowed to give advice on, but how much generally does the person need to retire? Like, I know that's different, obviously, based on every person. um, But like with inflation and just how things have changed so much in my lifetime, and I'm going to hopefully live to a time where I can retire, like how much does a person need? generally? Or like, is there a rule of whatever your, a percentage of your current salary or something like that? I think that the percentage they tell you is like, you need 80% of what you're currently making. Here's what I think. I think it's a moving target. So what I'll just use me as an example. So like what I made when I was 27, isn't what I would want to live on now, I guess. Does that make sense? So, but like a lot of things have well, actually, it's probably about, so maybe it is about what I would want to live on now. Maybe I'll, I added like a little bit more for like different things I didn't uh, have in my budget before. So I think it's a little bit of a moving target. So, cause your life, you know, your life changes over the next, you know, by the time you're, you know, 27 to 67 or 27 to 57 or, you know, 37 to 65 or what, whatever it is, you, your lifestyle will change a little. So I think the the key is because we have things like inflation and there, and we have so many unknown variables, like how long are you going to live, right? Mm-hmm. At what age you're going to retire? So I think that saving a good percentage of your income and getting to a high number. So what I like to try and do, 
and when you listen to the podcast, you'll kind of hear this, is for most people, I try and figure out how do we get them to at least a million saved for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we adjust, right? Up or down based on lifestyle goals and whether or not there's a pension, stuff like that. And the reason why I like to shoot for at least that, even though you'll hear people say a million dollars isn't enough, and it's probably not enough, but it's a great starting place, is because if you look at generationally, like, so my grandfather immigrated to this country back in, how old is 19? I think it was, they actually don't know exactly what year he was born because he was born on a farm. Oh. Yeah. So, because I had to get my citizenship, so it was like hard to figure out when exactly he was born oh, we have his baptismal baptismal certificate because that's through the church and the church is there go back forever so he immigrated around when he was 18 which is like 1928 about and so a million dollars to my grandfather and someone gave him a million dollars in like 1928 1930 that was a significant amount of money right like huge mm-hmm. life-changing money now if you gave a million dollars to my father who was born in 1947 also a significant amount of money to my father if he got that when he was in his, let's say, 20s or 30s, but not quite right. a, not quite as much of a needle mover as my grandfather, right? Right. If you gave me a million dollars today, I would 100% take that, right? Like, right. thank you very of much. Course. I would say not as much of a game changer as my grandfather or as my father, but still a significant amount of money. Right? right. And that's three generations. Yeah. So when people say it's not a lot of money, like most people, if they had were offered a million dollars, would take it. They wouldn't be like, nah, it's not a lot of money. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's my argument to the million dollar mark. So I like to try and get people at least to a million, like when we're, you know, like in your 20s and 30s, like let's shoot to get you to that number. And then we adjust up and down because planning for your retirement is something that you should do on a regular basis, like a lot of things, like showering, right? Like, mm-hmm. You have to constantly reevaluate this. It's a moving target. Maybe showering was a terrible example. I don't know why I said that one. But it's something that (laughs) you're just going to have to keep evaluating because things happen, right? And so I think you're in a really great spot. You front load at your retirement is the way I like to think about it. So if you can keep these numbers up in the next year even, you know, by the time you're, you're almost 28, by the time you're almost 29, you'll have so much already saved for retirement that if you tone it down a little to do another life goal, like move out of state and live somewhere new, that's totally fine. You've done, you were so diligent in your twenties. So, and then you just keep, you know, reevaluating your retirement goals. Like, do I need to up it a little, but you did the hard work, which is you saved a ton in your twenties. Right. And so now Mm -hmm. you have compounding of interest on your side. Yes. Oh, I owe my sister for forcing me to open up a Roth IRA. (laughs) Sisters are great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She right when I graduated, she was like, "All right, we're doing it. Open your laptop." And I'm like, "I don't, I don't even know. I don't even have like a real job." But um, yeah. So does that kind of answer it? Like, it's. I, I don't want to say like you need definitively two million because we don't know really definitively what you need and what inflation is going to look like. But you, inflation this year is up tremendously. But historically, mm-hmm. since like the 70s, it's like 4%, give or take. So that you take into account, you take into account really what you need for retirement is how much you need to live on, right? And you can inflate right. out what you're living on out 60 years and say, this is what I think it'll be. But I think it's better to save a certain percentage and work towards all your your goals and then evaluate that number and refine how much you need when you get closer. Okay. Okay. And that sounds good. As I've said to people before, I have yet to have anyone walk into my office in my day job and say to me, you know what? 
I saved way too much for retirement. Has never happened. Uh, Has right. not happened yet. Usually what happens is they were like, we, we hit our goal a lot faster. We think we'll like retire early or we're going to do this or do that. But I've never had someone say, oh, I've saved too much. Mm-hmm. Oh, retiring early. What a dream. Yeah, oh, right. right? It'd be <laughs> well, you've done a great job saving already. So what I would do is I would keep everything the same. Just take that extra cash flow you have, put it in your brokerage account, and then just keep reevaluating. And if you if you need to tone down the saving to you know allow for that goal to to relocate, then I would start with the brokerage account first, and then um, you could always tone down the retirement to like eighteen percent. Okay. Okay. And I can't touch retirement till I'm of a certain age. Is that right? That is correct. You're not supposed to touch it till 59 and a half. With your Roth though, you could always take back the money you initially put in because it's your money, you paid tax on it. Um, But that's why I like to, from a mindset standpoint, like that's your retirement money. Don't touch it. I don't like to do the first time home buyer or first. I like that Mm -hmm. to be totally separate, like leave it alone. Yep. That's how, I mean, I don't know that much about what I can take out and I, (laughs) Didn't ever really care to know because I knew I didn't really want to touch it. So I guess <laughs> this is a pipeline dream. But if I ever wanted to retire early, that brokerage account is what would really come in handy, right? Because I could pull from that. Yes. And so living expensive if I was to retire before I could touch my Roth. Yep. You could okay. use that. Um, there are ways around. T- like, So let's say you like retired at 55. There are ways um, around taking distributions from retirement accounts without having the f- under 59 and a half penalty, getting a little into the weeds here, but there are ways around it. So if you actually retired early and wanted access to your retirement accounts at like 50 or 55, you can do it. Mm-hmm. I just say for like the podcast listeners, like think of it as your retirement. But if you have enough saved and you want to start accessing it early, um, you, you can and you can get a- around those 59 and a half rules. Okay. Little loopholes here and there. But yes, the way I like to think about it is your brokerage would be your bridge. So let's say if you were like interested in the fire, mm-hmm. what the fire community is doing, the brokerage would be really how you would live until you got to closer to that retirement age. Because I don't ever like to jeopardize your permanent retirement for maybe like a temporary one. Right. Well, that's right. how I view well- it. I view it as like a temporary take a step back, career change, lifestyle business. And then that way we know no matter what happens when you get to that traditional retirement age, we didn't jeopardize that. Definitely. Definitely. So, and, and with all the money you've saved up, you might, you might find that maybe you don't want to do the primary residence, or maybe you do a two family or mother-in-law and you get that becomes a performing asset for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The options are endless, which is why it's so overwhelming, (laughs) but this has been so helpful. So Thank you for doing this with me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for coming on the show, Savannah Davenport. (laughs) And for all of our lovely listeners, you can, and please do, follow us on Instagram at Future Rich Podcast. That is where you'll find our most up-to-date information. And we have a really wonderful free online class that is in partnership with SUNY, uh, which is the State of New York University program that you can find on our website, www.futurerichpodcast.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.